Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Good morning. Hi, Erica. Good morning. Welcome to Book Talk. Book Talk podcast is your weekly book club where we read a section of a book and we talk about our feelings about that section of the book. And we have a lot of feelings and thoughts about this section <laughs> of The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. Before we get started with our discussion, Katie's going to give us a quick summary of what we just read about. We have a lot of feelings because a lot of things happened. And I was shocked multiple times in this section. So we see free to move into The School for Good Mothers, uh, which is with the other mothers, it's housed on an old college campus, and they are there to learn from the state how to be good mothers. On day two, they are soon introduced to their new children to practice with, who are extremely realistic and emotional little toddler robots. And these moms are forced to be perfect, always paying attention, given the exact right doses of love and boundaries. They are taught how to correctly clean their houses and live with others. The dolls and the cameras placed around the school are watching and scanning their every emotion. And we watch them struggle to live in this new environment. The two moms so far don't make it, one leaving on her own volition and one being kicked out or expelled. Um, and the moms left are going a little bit restless. But Frida remains determined to stay above the drama and survive this insane program and learn to mother her little robot daughter. I can't even believe all the things I just said. What a crazy chain of events. Yeah, it reminded me of Clara and the Sun with these little robot daughter children. It also reminded me a lot of Clara and the Sun. I feel like when they were talking about forming these emotional bonds with their robot daughters, I was imagining the kids and Clara with the Sun who just wanted that bond, wanted that friendship. And these moms definitely have another layer of protection up against it where they're a little bit afraid to love or care for these dolls or form a bond with them in comparison to the kids in Claire and the Sun who just were ready to go and form this bond with a robot and it become their best friend. One thing I'm not sure about, so they're just starting this new program. Frida seems like they're in the first class of women at this school. Are all of the women there for the same amount of time? Frida is sentenced to a year in this program. Is everybody there for the full year? That was my understanding that it's a year long program and that they have a because they have a curriculum. So it's like month one, you're learning this month two, you're learning this. So I think the curriculum is set up for 12 months, um, which apparently it's not on a rolling basis. I don't know. I was I knew to expect something at the school for good mothers. But this level of programming and the instructors and the robot toddlers caught me a little bit off guard. What did you think of this school? Is this what you expected her to be walking into? I'm not sure if it's what I expected exactly. I didn't think that there would be robot children, but if you do think of a state-sanctioned horror, psychological thriller setting, this is pretty much it, where these little creepy babies are staring at you and cataloging every single word that you say, every single touch that you give them, the look on your face when you look at them, it's like totally panopticon observation level a thousand. Yes. It freaks me out. They have emotions and she has to change the fluid in the baby because she gets all dimply and the baby like knows is, is hurt by it. And the next day is like a zombie. It's the emotional terror of what they're going through is also crazy while having to be the perfect mother and calm these children who are programmed to not to 
you know, go against it. Not real children. They cry for like 10 hours straight until the mom comforts them. Ugh. That's also what's strange is they're meant to feel and treat the dolls or the robots like they're their own children, yet also be totally fine with the supervisors physically harming them, which seems like so impossible to do both. You either have to separate yourself and be like, this doll is not real, or this doll is real and is my child. And if that's my child, you're holding her down on a table and making me scoop inside of her body? Right. I feel like on some level they're afraid to really put their full selves into caring for these dolls, maybe because then they're afraid of losing whatever bond they have with their kids. Their kids are so young and so impressionable, the ones they left at home. So I think there's kind of that playing into it as well. It's also just a completely unrealistic situation that they're in. They're expected to treat them like real children, but when they can't comfort them, they cry for 10 hours straight with never getting hoarse or falling asleep. They freeze them at lunchtime. They don't have to, you know, None of it is realistic compared to what they would deal with in the regular world where they would have jobs and other people and they'd have to deal with other things besides just caring for this child 12 hours a day. So I feel like they're taking a really clinical view of mothering and making them meet these benchmarks that aren't actually going to help them be better mothers or learn to balance or give them the resources they need to be able to balance better, but instead are just making them meet metrics they think will become a good mom, which reminds me of like standardized testing or something where you're like, just meet these benchmarks, then you can go to grad school. You're like, okay, well, if I do algebra and then I want to go to grad school for psychology, why do you need to know if I can do algebra? These things are not connected um, and, and doesn't really speak to how successful you would be. And I feel like that's kind of what they're doing here, which makes sense if it's a state funded program. It's definitely a catch-22. It seems like it's intentionally a catch-22. I also find it incredibly ironic, intentionally ironic, of course, that these instructors, with the exception of like the headmistress, quote unquote, none of the instructors have kids. You're like, well, I'm a proud dog mom. And like, well, I'm an aunt. Oh so. my God. <laughs> so of course they can't understand at all the unrealistic and demanding expectations they're putting on these moms. Yes. They can't understand any of the expectations society places on the moms, but also I feel like they don't have any concept of what it, that being a mom is part of your identity as being a full person. Like they just want them to be this perfect robotic mom and they get to judge it from the outside because they don't have to do it and they get to go home to their dogs and not care for their children and never make any mistakes or be held accountable. Some of these stories are obviously really bad. These moms who put her six kids in a hole in her house. Not great. You should probably be there. But then you have the mom who let her 12-year-old niece babysit her baby. And I'm like, yeah, that seems fine to me. I'm like, that. I think I was definitely babysitting at 12 years old. So some of these are just these rules that maybe aren't applicable in the real world because this mom is going back to school and has all these pressures placed on her. What is she supposed to do with the kid? So I feel like there is levels to it, but all these moms, it doesn't matter what level of abuse or neglect, et cetera. They're all in this same year long program, which also seems crazy to me. Right. And they have like developed their own factions within the school of well, we're the hitters and we're the non-hitters. Like, we, mm. well, we maybe have neglected our kids, but we never hit them. Yeah. Uh, I did want to read a section from page 75 about the expectations of Frida. It says, in order to get Harriet back, Frida must learn to be a better mother. She must demonstrate her capacity for genuine maternal feeling and attachment, hone her maternal instincts, and show that she can be trusted. 
And that is also a catch-22 at the core of this reform program, which is not, we're not teaching you behavioral skills. We're trying to change how you feel, or we're trying to change your insides to some level that we deem acceptable, which you can't force someone to feel the same type of motherly love that you think is motherly love. It's like they're putting them up against this impossible standard. They keep using... Uh, wording that sounds to me like Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, like love is patient, love is kind, you know, motherly love. Like you always have an endless well of resources to give to your child. You're always able to talk them through anything. You're always there to be present. You never raise your voice at them. And in Corinthians, like that is talking about godly love, like heavenly love, like above human capacity Obviously, because it is way above human capacity. We're people. We get tired, frustrated. We have to be taken care of. We have to be loved in order to like pass that on to anyone. And any mom is going to have a day where she's not patient or they are not patient. Yes. But also people have different attachment styles in different ways that they show their love and different ways of communicating it. Even something as basic as like the five love languages. I don't know why this is reminding me of it, but you have different ways in which you show and receive love as humans. And I feel like they're putting them in this bucket. This is the only way that you can be a mother and show the motherly love. This is the only way that you can successfully raise a child, not taking into consideration the different attachment styles or different ways in which people were raised. I mean, you're trying to also undo whatever trauma these moms have gone through, but they're not trying to undo it or get to the root of it or help them work through it or any of that. They're just like, you need to fit into a mold. It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of emotional intelligence you have, what kind of attachments you had, what your parents were. It just matters if you can meet our standards or not. Ugh, it's just so But then sad. we also have Helen, who is at the extreme end of loving her child too much to the extent she's like coddling her 17-year-old, where she wants to cut up his food for him and zip up his jackets. And it's like, oh, well, that is love gone too far. Now you're babying him by showing him too much love and care. I also feel like learning to be a quote-unquote good mother and learning to be a parent is kind of a journey you're going on the entire time that you are being a parent, right? You're learning more of who you are and how you can react or how you can be better um, as your kid grows up, and especially if you have more than one kid, which is why it's so different to parent your first kid than parenting your second or third or seventh kid. But they're expecting these moms to change their entire way of doing that and learn everything in, in one year and in a very clinical setting. I do think the definition of what a good mother is in this book, their definition, their standardized way of determining it is also interesting comparing to what we call a good mom today, which is different than this near future good mom and different than what I'm sure my grandma would have called a good mom. So it's interesting too how it's kind of evolving over time because now it's not just about does your kid have something to eat and do they going outside to play? It's like, what is their screen time and what level of reading are they at before they get to preschool? And also are their clothes color coordinated and just all of these different, I feel like there are just so many other levels to it now that we're expecting from moms. And it's just getting worse and worse. I think this book is kind of also like a warning of how much worse it can get when you have no grace for moms being humans. Right. That's the crux of this, of the issue of this school is like, you know, what is a good mom? It doesn't exist. There is no good mom by this definition. Every parent starts off 
their journey of parenthood thinking like, well, I'm going to be better than my parents or I'm going to do it right or we're not going to let them eat processed foods and da, 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 da. And then, of course, like things happen. We're people. No parent is perfect. And all parents mess their kids up in some way and some ways bigger than others. Um, And this school just has no acknowledgement of that. But what's also intriguing in this section and I'm wondering what is going to happen with it is it also seems like Gust and Susanna are not adhering to the level of a good mom either because or good parents either because they didn't get Harriet a flu shot and it seems like they're a little like on the crunchy wellness side of like anti-vax so and there is a mom in the school right now who's anti-vax and that's why she's there so it's also an interesting question of how would the state view Susanna? And maybe this is going to loop back around to Susanna and Gust being looked at by the state. I didn't even think about that with Susanna. I am excited to see how that plays out and if they hold her and Gust to the same standards that they're holding Frida to. What do you think is going on at the dad's side or the dad's camp? So are the dads at camp also now or is that starting later? If that already exists and, like, they're thinking of how to do, like, a co-ed parent camp. I don't know. I feel like part of me believes, I think it's Linda in this section. She's like, I'm sure they're not being held to these standards. I'm sure they don't have these robot children that they're expected to meet every single need of 24-7. But maybe they are. Maybe it's, maybe this dystopia world has some equity in it, but probably not. (laughs) What do you think? I don't even know what our standards for good dads are. I feel like a good dad by society standards today would be someone who like plays catch with their son on the weekends and works hard during the week to make money for the family. I bet that's what the dad camp would be like, sort of like earnings potential and saving for your kid's future and providing discipline and then sports. (laughs) Oh my God. But it is because it's just it's completely different. Our our expectations of what moms have to do and endure and what they should be and what dads have to do and should and be. what they're praised for doing, too. When they go above and beyond and they do take care of the kids or get them ready for school, it's like this anomaly. Or when they're the stay at home dad instead of the stay at home mom, it's an anomaly. It's something everyone's paying attention to. I don't know what's happening at the dad one. I will be interested to see if they have any kind of co-ed mingling and what that looks like. And then. Do you have just very specific gender roles that they're both meeting? Someone in my life, and I won't say who, has multiple children and left the children alone with the dad for like a weekend. And when they got back, the dad was like, you're not ever doing that again. You cannot leave me alone with multiple children. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's like, okay, well, they are your children. And what do you think that she does all day, every day, takes care of these children? Right. Okay, well, then I never want to be left alone with them again either. (laughs) Like, it's only a two-adult situation. Okay, great. Then I am never staying with it by myself without another adult either, if that's the standard. The Mm. state also said the issue with her leaving Harriet alone is that Harriet could have been kidnapped or murdered or molested. But she wasn't, first of all. Second of all, Frida and a mom most likely would not be the one doing the kidnapping and the murdering. That would be a man. And it kind of reminded me, or statistically, it would most likely be a man. And it reminded me of 
this sort of victim blaming that we do when women get sexually assaulted, where it's like, well, you should have known not to go down that street. Well, you shouldn't have been wearing headphones because if you're wearing headphones and you're setting yourself up, you're setting the conditions under which something like this could happen to you. And that's Frida's true crime is like she potentially exposed her daughter to harm at the hands of someone else, which is not the same thing as harming them directly. But somehow it's up to moms to anticipate the future harm that other people are going to cause their children and get ahead of it, which is like just crazy. Yeah, it's insane. Also, I feel like you're not taking into consideration how unsafe the situation actually was for Harriet, because while not ideal and not a thing you should do, it's not like she left Harriet alone in a shopping mall by herself in an unattended stroller for two and a half hours. I mean, I don't know, like, what are the chances someone's going to kidnap, molest, or murder her inside of the home? I mean, I think there were other things that are probably more concerning, like her being in that chair for two and a half hours or her diaper or something like that. But not these, it feels outlandish to be like she was at risk of being kidnapped, molested, or murdered. I mean, she is, but like we're, that's always a risk. Right. At a higher risk, I guess is what I'm right. saying. Like I, I, that she's at like this increased insane risk where they have to take her away. That seems to me unrealistic, but. Or for this length of time, I think that's obviously the punishment does not fit the harm in this case. And for the record, I'd like to say I was left in an elevator um, and you know what? I turned out just fine. <laughs> um, yeah, this goes back to my. I don't know if I should tell this story in here, but I'm going to, and then we can decide if we're going to cut it out or not. But I was thinking about like mothering now and what the expectations are for moms. And then when, when I was a kid and when my mom was a kid, when I was a kid, my mom took all of us on a walk in San Francisco and got, we got lost on the boardwalk, not San Francisco, San Diego, we got lost on the boardwalk at the beach and she couldn't find a way back. We had just gotten to the beach house earlier that day and she found this house and this, this family like lived in this house on the boardwalk and they had a bunch of toys and kids running around. My mom just walked up and was like, can you watch these kids for a minute? Like I have to go find the house and I will come back. And then she just like left us there with these strangers. And also one of the, it was my siblings and I, and also my cousin's kid. And she just left the four of us there at this house with these people. And we just like played with their kids and had some Oreos. And then my mom walked back and found the house, found my dad. And then they came back and got us. But also, no one took us away from her. Uh, and she was just, like, assessing the situation for the level of safety and was like, this seems safe based on whatever knowledge she wanted to use to determine that. And was like, yeah, they have children. There are children playing here who seem happy. They're probably really wealthy. They live on the boardwalk. And uh, perfect. Great. They'll watch my kids. Uh, I don't remember what the point of that story was. But just that it's, these expectations are unrealistic for moms. So in this section, we see two moms leave. We see Helen leave because she thinks this is completely insane. She leaves on her own volition. She has a better case for doing so than the other moms because her kid is 17. So at 18, he could come find her realistically if he wanted to. So I think she's got a lot less to go through than the other moms whose kids are super young. The second mom we see leave does not leave on her own volition, um, but leaves for getting in a fight, I believe, was the was what got her expelled. And she's going to be put on this registry, which basically is going to tell the entire universe every time her social security number is ran that she's a quote-unquote bad parent. What do you think about this registry, about the situation, about this kind of very black and white situation where you're either a bad parent or you are not? You either succeed or you do not, and there's no chance for second chances. I feel great about it. I'm kidding. 
obviously Jessamine <laughs> is asking uncomfortable questions about the sex offender registry. It seems like that most obvious parallel, something that follows you wherever you go, something that is just like you're on it and that's it. And good luck trying to explain why what you did is actually not that bad and it's not what people think. And maybe it's kind of different and da 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 da, da in a way that people believe, which probably doesn't happen. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know why the way you parented your child has anything to do with buying a house, but I guess you could honestly say the same thing about a number of other registries that we have that yep. follow people around for the rest of their lives. You could. Not also to say again. that we don't have to punish bad people, but that's, again, the question of this book is like, what is a bad person? What's a bad offense? How do we put people in buckets Right, where are the lines Sometimes at? where it's necessary and sometimes yes. where it's not necessary and who's the one deciding that. Right, and how are we deciding that? I think that's really the question. It's not that we can't have any kind of punishment or these boundaries around things that are truly awful, but where is the line? And can you be on the registry for, like if Frida was put on that registry for the rest of her life, that would be crazy for getting in a fight in the emotionally vulnerable state she's in being at this home she were to get in some sort of fight or kicked out for some other reason or for her kid die. I guess she kicked out because her kid was like dying also but uh her robot kid not her real kid um I don't think she should be on it but also there's people who probably should be on it so same thing with all of our other registries I guess how do you make those decisions and who has the power to make them well we're on the clock now with her timing it's funny that we're following collegiate schedules it feels like at this college that they've repurposed so she started there in the fall and it doesn't seem like it's moving that quickly so I'm wondering what else is going to happen in the next section and how much time is going to elapse seems like Frida is really committed to keeping her head down and trying to just get through this and not make careless mistakes even like gossiping or saying the wrong thing to the other women so we will see I'm rooting for her but it seems like a system that's set up for failure agreed rooting for her but just hoping she makes it through here I also think it's just going to get harder and harder for her if Gus and Susanna don't start letting her see Harriet or making these calls a priority or making Frida's connection with her daughter a priority I think she's going to start to fall apart but I hope she can hold it together enough to pass well next oh go ahead one more thing I just want to ask about. What Do you think that Will is going to have any significance in this story or going to come back? No. <laughs> <laughs> so he's very irrelevant to me. Cool, cool. Cool, just check. No worries. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. All right. Well, next week we're reading chapters 9 through the end of chapter 14. what books I read I know you're like what books did I read probably like three I didn't finish a book but um I'm reading Vladimir by Julia May Jonas it's about a professor at a small liberal arts college who is in some hot water he's not dismissed yet but he's in trouble for sleeping with people who are student age or graduate student age who may go to the university not necessarily his students sometimes his students but just in general people who are of that age but there's this other level of it where he's married, but him and his wife are in an open marriage. And she knew about all of the, 
all of the trysts, all of the women who are all, as she says, of age and wanted to be there just as much. And you are basically in the head of this narrator. She's 60 and she is now having to deal with people telling her that she should retire. They feel uncomfortable with her teaching because she's not immediately divorcing him that. And so she's kind of struggling with what is, what does this mean for her? And so you're in, it's really a character study inside of her brain. Um, because she also had extramarital affairs the entire time as well. Um, and is currently lusting over the new adjunct professor, which is Vladimir um, and using her power as a, as a well-respected professor in that situation as well. So it's kind of a character study on power and gender and what that all means, kind of the era of Me Too. I'm not sure how it will end or if anything will end. There's also this added drama of her um, daughter who's gone through a really bad breakup with her girlfriend who's moving home and dealing with that as well and also dealing with the her parents' marriage and their struggle through this situation. So I'm not sure how it will end or if it will end in any kind of closed loop, but being inside of her head is very interesting. She's extremely self-obsessed and also extremely intelligent so we shall see so far i like it though it's very easy to read so vladimir is the new hot professor yes, not her he husband is hot. yes interesting mm-hmm. and he's married but his marriage is not great his wife is mentally not well and she's also in and out of the picture and so i think that our narrator senses that vulnerability as well and is essentially like sees her prey she's like perfect a marriage that's on the rocks That'll work out well for me. She's doing the same thing, which again kind of goes back to our discussion on power last week if you listened to the episode of The Power, which is that it isn't necessarily because you're a man, but it is because you have the power that can, on a personal level, affect how you deal with situations. So we'll see. More to come. The Power was a full three weeks ago by the time this episode comes out, but... (laughs) Okay, I'm going to say our last special episode. Well, that's on our last special episode. No, it's fine. It's fine. Our last book. Oh! critical today (laughs) Uh, it's just our our timeline and the world and the actual timeline is different and it's confusing vladimir was a book of the month yeah it was a book of the month is it a romance novel no definitely not okay i do think that the cover is is a shirtless man you can't see his head um and he's in like an emerald green suit so i did think it was gonna be more of a romance novel but i will tell you that it is not she's obviously lusting after vladimir for most of the book but it really is every bit of character study and going through her head as she kind of grapples with her life falling apart and with being an older woman who is still lusting after a much younger man and kind of Still having this kind of second sexual awakening as well. I want to read it. I'm interested to read a book about this within academia because I have a lot of feelings about professors who sleep with graduate students. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, is how she's being treated by the student body as somebody who didn't do anything wrong but is has not left him yet, which she has her own reasons for doing. I don't even think she's in love with him anymore, but she basically is like, I don't want to come across as this weak woman who leaves in the face of like, she's all these different things she's struggling with about whether or not she wants to leave him. She's also not financially independent from him. She can't afford the house or her life on her own. So there's a lot more that's going into it. And her students are just like, you have no self-respect. You have to leave this man. And she was like, none of you have any, um, none of you have any sexual power and you're just not as, advanced as I am like she's not handling it well but it's very interesting I'm definitely gonna give it to you to read especially because it has to do with academia cool okay (laughs) okay (laughs) okay how many books did you read what did you read 
I just read Wahala by Nikki May. That's the book I finished this week. I loved it. I think I've been waiting to find a book this year that really makes me happy. And this book made me happy despite it being sort of tense by the end and dramatic. It starts off with these three women who are close knit friends who sort of have found each other because they're all, they all have one parent who's black and one parent who's white and they're living in London and the surrounding areas. And a fourth woman is introduced to the group who was friends with one of the friends, Simi, when she was growing up. So Isabel is the new entrant into the group and she brings drama, drama, drama with her. She is definitely like an interloper and a gossiper. And it's not clear for a while whether her intentions are good, but her actions are bad or whether her intentions are bad. But she is bringing the wahala, which means trouble with her. It's so good. All three of the women are dealing with very relatable struggles with who they are, what they want, where they're at, and their respective relationships. I loved it. I thought it was so delightful. It takes a while to get to the drama. Like at first, you're kind of meeting all three of these women and their stories and the people in their lives, but they're so likable that you're just like, yes, I'm bought in. I love all three of them. And then things start to pick up pretty much as soon as you're on board with all of them. So I loved it. Great book. Highly recommend. It's definitely on my list. I have, I'm going to finish Vladimir. I have another book I'm going to read next. And then I'm going to read that one. I can't wait. What are you reading now? Oh, Vladimir. And then what are you going to read next? Okay. I'm reading Vladimir now. And then I asked for some recommendations on our book talk um, Instagram because I really wanted a book that people loved. And so I'm going to read one that my brother's girlfriend recommended. It's called A Woman Is No Man by Itaf Room. Um, I said I wanted a cute book. She said, this is not cute, but it's fantastic. I said, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to read that next. I don't know anything about it yet, but we'll report back. And then I'm going to read Wahala after that. I will say reading Vladimir is a book that I'm not hating. And I feel like every other book besides The Power I've read in 2021, I'm just like, am I, am I done with this yet? And I'm enjoying reading Vladimir. It's making me want to finish it and pick up a new book. So we love that. We love getting out of a reading That's a good feeling. Oh, yeah. Yes. It's a good feeling. It's how I felt after Wahala. Yeah, it's like, like okay, what hey, can I read? Next? I love books. Right. And I love when it like reinvigorates that. Like I do love to read actually. Okay, well, see you next week. Bye. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. My back okay is fucking killing me still. Oh, I was going to ask, but then I heard you grunt oh. 72 times to answer the question. What? So I was going to ask if your back was getting any better, but then you're like, oh, my back. <laughs>